the state of grace. Those whom God has redeemed are in the state of grace, or the covenant of grace. They are freed from the burden of sin and guilt and the penalty of death, and move in the freedom of grace. During World War II, one man was in action for a full eight years, during which time every noise meant a possible bombing or an enemy attack. His life was one of continual tension and pressure, as well as responsibility. All of this became a way of life and a normal condition, which he lived with in almost stoical resistance. Then, after the war, he awoke one night from a frightening nightmare in which the enemy were attacking and his machine gun jammed. Shaking with fear and horror, he turned on the light to help shake off the nightmare. The war is over, he told himself. The words in the light pushed back the darkness and the tension. His world was not without serious problems, but the war was over, and with it all the lurking horror of a bloody death in dirt and mud. He had passed from one world into another, with relief and a sense of freedom. This man's experience had a double aspect. First, there was the objective fact that the war was over. Second, there was the subjective freedom which came when the implications of peace came home to him. The state of grace is similar. The objective fact is that the welfare or enmity between God and man is ended by the atoning and regenerating work of God in Christ. The subjective fact is the awareness that comes to the redeemed man that his life is now one of peace and grace. Thomas Boston, in Human Nature in its Fourfold State, defined the state of grace as the state of begun recovery of human nature. It is the work of reconstruction begun in man, whereby he, having a new principle of life, begins to grow and to be remade in knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and dominion. Because he is created in the image of God, man yearns for reconstruction. Because he is a sinner, unregenerate man creates disorder and destruction instead. Margaret Elizabeth Austin, in the opening lines of her poem, Charlie Sapiens, describes this schizophrenia. Man is the only animal that keeps a place for everything with nothing in it. Vainly he yearns for order, chaos creeps, higher around his body by the minute. In the state of grace, instead of this destructive sadomasochistic character of the state of depravity, man's life is marked by growth. Personal and social growth are not normally desired by men and civilizations. Instead of growth, they desire to continue the present or return to the past. If men are revolutionists, they then seek to destroy the present order only to create a more static and unchanging order. The dream states of socialists and communists is a rigid and inflexible order which has no room for growth or disagreement. Revolutionists are thus usually far more reactionary than our conservatives, but both are alike hostile to growth. Puritanism, because it emphasized the newness of the gospel and the dimensions of relevance and growth, was quickly productive of science and progress. The aristocrats and nobility of England were usually Roman Catholic and Anglican, and, like John Aubrey, longed for the good old days, which to them was a golden age. Then lords and knights ruled the land, and the Pope, with all his authority, ruled over Christendom. Then the Crusados to the Holy Wars were most magnificent and glorious, and the rise, I believe, of the adventures of knight-errants and romances. The solemnities of processions in and about the churches, and the preambulations in the fields, besides their convenience, were fine-pleasing diversions. The priests went before in their formalities, singing the Latin service, and the people came after making their good-meaning responses. The reverence given to holy men was very great. 
Then were the churches open all day long, men and women going in and out hourly to and from their devotions. Then were the consciences of the people kept in so great awe by confession that just dealing in virtue was habitual. There were no free schools. The boys were educated at the monasteries. The young maids, not at Hackney, say schools and continued to learn pride and wantonness, but at the nunneries, where they had examples of piety, humility, and modesty to imitate in practice. Here they learned needlework and the art of confectionery, surgery, anciently no apothecaries or surgeons, the gentlewomen did care their poor neighbors, their hands are now too fine, physic, writing, drawing, etc. The lords, then lords indeed as well as title, lived in their countries like petty kings, had jura regalia belonging to their signories, had their castles and boroughs, and sent burgesses to the lower house, had gallows within their liberties where they could try, condemn, hang, and draw, never went up to London but in Parliament time, or once a year to do their homage and duty to the king. No younger brothers then were, by the custom and constitution of the realm, to betake themselves to trades, but were churchmen, or retainers, or servants to great men, rid good horses, now and then took a purse, and their blood that was bred at the good tables or their masters was upon every occasion freely let out in their quarrels. It was then too common amongst their masters to have feuds with one another, and their servants at market or where they met in that slashing age did commonly bang one another's bucklers. The poor boys did turn the spits and lick the dripping pan and grew to be huge lusty knaves. In those days, the gentry begot their own servants and copyhold tenants, the customer of lying with the bride the first night. No alehouses nor yet innis then, unless upon great roads. When they had a mind to drink, they went to the friaries, and when they traveled, they had entertainment at the religious houses for three days if occasion so long required. The meeting of the country was not then at tippling houses, but in the fields or forests with their hawks or hounds, with their bugle horns and sulken baudries. Such joy and merriment was every holiday, which days were kept with great solemnity and reverence. In Herefordshire and parts of the marches of Wales, the tabber and pipe were exceeding common. Many beggars begged with it, and the peasants danced to it in the churchyard on holy days and holy day eves. Now it is almost lost the drum and the trumpet, have put that peaceable music to silence. In those times, besides the jollities already mentioned, they had their pilgrimages to several shrines, as chiefly hereabout to St. Joseph of Arimathea at his chapel in Gastonbury Abbey. In the roads thither were several houses of entertainment built purposely for them. Not surprisingly, the writings of Aubrey are those of an antiquarian. His vision was always past-bound and for all his winsome and kindly nature and superior birth, he was a lower-class character, unable to manage a good estate, and finally an object of charity to his friends. Moreover, Aubrey, for all his liking for old Catholic England, was not as close to it as the Puritans he disliked. For him, the religious expression of old England had been fine-pleasing diversions. The old order perished because this was all it had become to too many people. The Puritans took the old order very seriously. They warred against it for that reason, and they also sought to restore certain aspects of it because they took it seriously. Puritanism was in part a return to the feudal social order, a development of it, and an application and development of biblical faith to Christendom. If their hatred of the beautiful processions and churches was sometimes but seldom destructive, but not nearly so as the work of Henry VIII, Charles V in the sack of Rome, and other monarchs, it was because they resented seeing a living faith become fine-pleasing diversions. 
The roots of English liberty in the old feudal order have been cited by Galliere. In other words, the old feudal liberties were expanded in England, till every Englishman enjoyed all the guarantees of life and property owned by the medieval lord. On the continent, they were contracted till they had all been gathered into the hands of one or few men, the old freemen, the nobility, being gradually reduced to the condition of the former conquered people, the serfs, with no political rights at all. Thus have the citizens of an American county inherited all the rights and privileges of the medieval count, and the American county organizations, simply by the extension of the count's authority to the people, remains to this day a vestige of feudal organization more than ten centuries old. All of this is very closely related to the state of grace, because the state of grace is not static nor past or present bound, but future-oriented. The state of grace is not without sin, but it is never without growth. St. Paul made it clear that the sinner is dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, cross-reference Colossians 2.13, and therefore incapable of growth. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 4-6. The characteristic of death is decay, that of life, growth. The regenerate man, being alive in Christ, will therefore grow. St. Paul compared the growth to that of a child from babyhood, and milk to maturity in meat, 1 Corinthians 3, 1-2, Hebrews 5, 12-14. An often painful experience, one which separates us from family and friends, is their inability to grow, so that it becomes difficult to talk to people we love but have long since outgrown. The conservative, fearful of the present and future, looks backward only. The revolutionist is also past-bound. His vision is one of destruction for the past and present and a static, unchanging utopia for the future. Neither is capable of growth, and victory then goes to those who destroy the most. Man in the state of grace is more conservative than the political conservatives. He has a surer grasp of the past and present because he assesses it in terms of the word of God. He is also more radical than the revolutionist because he has a principle of growth in him which requires continual change and progress in terms of the word of God. Weber, Taney, and others linked capitalism to Calvinism. Others, critics, cited evidences of capitalistic growth in medieval culture. In reality, growth, economic, political, cultural, scientific, and in every other area, requires a Christian culture in which the principle of growth under God has full scope. The old order Aubrey longed for had moved from growth to diversion, and as a result, it was subjected to attacks from several fronts and finally collapsed. Social growth rests on personal growth. In 1792, the Reverend Thomas Scott, in a letter of December 24th to Dr. Ryland of Bristol, wrote, I entirely agree with you that many things want mending among us, but I fear the governed are as much to blame as the governors. The nation indeed is a mass of corruption, and throwing it into a new form will not mend it. If North America prosper under her new government, the cause is principally to be found in the moral state of the inhabitants. Scott favored a limited monarchy but he did not put any confidence in the form of government. The basic problem was in the nature of man. With unregenerate men, no form of government could give more than a temporary respite from oppression. Scott's son reported, It need scarcely be said that a man of my father's principles and discernment was never in any danger of being duped by the boasting pretensions and nigh expectations which accompanied the earlier periods of the French Revolution. 
He always held that, proceeding as it did upon irreligious principles, and being founded in false views of human nature, no good was to be expected from it otherwise than as a remote consequence. When men hope for social reform by some means other than the grace of God and the salvation of individual men, they are declaring that evil is in the environment rather than in man. The state of grace reveals itself in man by a delight in the word of God, a readiness to grow therein, and an ability to endure the hot sun of adversity and grow stronger in the faith. The word of God, which finds good ground or a regenerate heart, brings forth fruit. There is growth and production, Matthew 13, 1-23. Because growth is a characteristic of life, it is a characteristic of the state of grace. The state of grace also manifests itself in true freedom, in the glorious liberty of the children of God, Romans 8, 21. The unregenerate talk much of liberty, but by this they mean only freedom from God and his law. Beyond that, they are lovers of tyranny. At this point, Wise, not always a sound guide, is right in declaring, The real issue is not between determination and freedom, it is between determinism and internal anarchy. In a law-abiding universe, personality cannot be other than law-abiding. There is a pseudo-freedom which is the opposite of the genuine sense of freedom. It is the freedom of the person who insists that he should be permitted to express his anger, or his sexuality, or any other impulse without consideration of the rights and welfare of others, or of what such behavior will do to him. There is the false freedom of the person who feels a compulsion to hurt another under the guise of being helpful. There is the false freedom of the individual who tries to throw off all external restraints. These freedoms are illusory. A genuine sense of freedom, a positive sense that one is able to so order his life that he may achieve a higher degree of joy for himself and others, is a mark of a well-integrated, mature person. Freedom and responsibility are the functions of an ever-maturing self. Law is an aspect of the nature of God, and because man is created in God's image, he finds self-expression as a law creature. Because of sin, this law expression is a perverted one. When the law becomes identified with the will of man, it comes to mean the power to inflict and to degrade, as Valen's novel so well depicts. When mediated by science, this perverted law expression, predestination by man, becomes a dream of total control. Scientists are at work striving to abolish true freedom as a threat. Thomas Henry Huxley once wrote that, If some great power would agree to make me always think what is true and do what is right, he would consent to being turned into a sort of clock and being wound up every morning before I get out of bed. Mr. Huxley left us too soon. There are men now who would gladly accommodate him. Suddenly, 1984 is just 4,500 days or so away, and George Orwell's timing, it appears, was not that far off. Within 15 or 20 years, says Dr. Marvin Carlins, human behavior control techniques will be advanced to the point where we can control anyone. In a new book, Requiem for Democracy, An Inquiry in the Limits of Behavior Control, Carlins and his co-author, Lewis Andrews, tell us it's already happening. Transmitting signals to electrodes implanted in a charging bull's head, Yale's physiologist Jose Delgado caused the bull to halt in mid-charge and walk away, presumably in search of a cow. It also was Delgado who caused mother monkeys under the influence of electrical brain stimulation to savagely attack their young. It's also possible to take one person's memories and transfer them to another person, explained Andrews, a PhD candidate at Stanford University. It has been done with worms. 
Scientists taught one worm to crawl through a maze. They then chopped it up and fed it to another worm, which crawled through the maze. Andrews said that memory is a chemical state, and the scientists are now trying to discover how to transfer memories in higher forms of life. Most think it will be in the form of a pill, he said. We take the position that behavior control can be used for good or bad purposes, Andrews said. There are two ways to control people. The first way would be very rigid and, in effect, turn people into robots. Theoretically, this is possible, but it probably would be very inefficient because of the amount of time involved. In the second way, a person could be conditioned to do certain kinds of things. He would, in effect, be sent along a path and know where he was going. The problem posed by behavior control is not external tyranny. On the contrary, the real problem is the threat of freedom. If we recognize that a perfected behavior control technology is within our grasp, then for the first time in history, we are truly responsible for our destiny. Several observations can be made about this report. First, electrodes have already been implanted in human beings, mental patients. Coughlin reported in 1963 that, for medical purposes and techniques, there had already been a few hundred deep implantations in human subjects. The news report thus has nothing new to say. It merely conditions us to expect something which has been announced for about 10 years. Second, the experiment with memory transfer with worms, by no means news, was of dubious value, if any, and has been challenged. It is an example in scientific dress of a basic thesis of cannibalistic practice, acquiring the characteristics of someone else by eating him. Third, the argument that such controls can be good is easily tested. If it is potentially good, then let these scientists allow electrodes to be turned over to us. This, of course, would be intolerable to them. The controls they deem beneficial are ones which they command. Fourth, the heart of the matter is in their comment that the real problem is the threat of freedom. A god, to be truly god, must absolutely control his creation or universe. For these humanists whose faith makes them their own gods, the freedom of other men is a threat to their plans. As a result, our freedom is for them the real problem, and as problem solvers, they plan to eliminate it. God, however, as the absolute sovereign and free being who predestines all things according to his sovereign will, has created us in his image. This means that our destiny is the freedom of a secondary cause, of a creature, and our regeneration reestablishes us in this freedom. The law expression of man is then his free and willing service to God and his obedience to the law word of God. The rise of humanism and its steady destruction of Christian morality has meant the loss of liberty and the rise of tyranny. The Inquisition of the Middle Ages was in violation of biblical law and principles, but at its worst, it victimized individuals, whereas, especially since the French Revolution, humanism has victimized men wholesale, killing them by the millions and subjecting the living to the most ruthless tortures. The state of grace is also called the covenant of grace, because it is life in the family of Christ. The state of grace is life within Christ, and it means, first of all, community with the triune God. The community sought by humanism is destructive of the individual, just as its individualism is atomistic, since there is no sound doctrine of the one and the many. As a result, there is neither true community nor true individuality. Dostoevsky's comment is pertinent. The isolation that prevails everywhere, above all in our age, it is not yet fully developed, it has not reached its limit yet. For everyone strives to keep his individuality as apart as possible, which is to secure the greatest possible fullness of life for himself, 
But meantime, all his efforts result not in attaining fullness of life, but self-destruction. For instead of self-realization, he ends by arriving at complete solitude. All mankind in our age have split up into units. They all keep apart, each in his own groove. Each one holds aloof, hides himself, and hides what he has from the rest, and he ends up being repelled by others and repelling them. He heaps up riches by himself and thinks, how strong I am now and how secure. And in his madness, he does not understand that the more he heaps up, the more he sinks into self-destructive impotence. For he is accustomed to rely upon himself alone and to cut himself off from the whole. He has trained himself not to believe in the help of others, in men and in humanity, and only trembles for fear he should lose his money and the privileges he has won for himself. God's covenant promise of Genesis 17.7 is, I will be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. The community is a continuing one, and its essence is God's providential and protecting care. How does a man know that he is in the state of grace? It is a poor test to be able to say that, on a particular date, at a revival meeting, one was converted. Not everyone can, indeed most Christians cannot, date their regeneration. The test is not dating, but the character or fruits of grace. As Thomas Boston stated it, All men in the state of grace are born again. All gracious persons, namely such as are in a state of favor with God and endowed with gracious qualities and dispositions, are regenerate persons. Clearly, persons in the state of grace are not those who say they are, but those of whom God says these are his people, which he declares by the gracious qualities, dispositions, and works he manifests in and through them. To be in the state of grace means thus to serve and glorify God and to enjoy him, and to unite with his people in his service and praise. This means far more than an institutional loyalty, nor is it even primarily such an allegiance. St. John declared, And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. 1 John 2.3 Words which echoed our Lord's declaration. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Matthew 7.21 The Westminster Confession of Faith summed up the matter thus. Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Chapter 18, Section 1 In the larger catechism, the assurance of the state of grace is stated more fully. Question 79. May not true believers, by reason of their imperfections and the many temptations and sins they are overtaken with, fall away from the state of grace? Answer. True believers, by reason of the unchangeable love of God and his decree and covenant to give them perseverance, their inseparable union with Christ, his continual intercession for them, and the spirit and seed of God abiding in them, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Question 80. Can true believers be infallibly assured that they are in the estate of grace and that they shall persevere therein unto salvation? Answer. Such as truly believe in Christ and endeavor to walk in all good conscience before him may without extraordinary revelation, by faith grounded upon the truth of God's promises, and by the Spirit enabling them to discern in themselves those graces to which the promises of life are made, 
and bearing witness with their spirits that they are the children of God, may be infallibly assured that they are in the estate of grace and shall persevere therein unto salvation. Since grace is God's work in the life of man, God neither undoes his work nor can man undo it. Those whom God saves are eternally saved. Since it is regenerating grace which leads a man to hear the word of God and to be converted, man is thus in a state of grace when he responds to the word of God. The grace which is prior to conversion and which causes a man to hunger and thirst for righteousness and to mourn over his sins is prevenient grace. Prevenient grace changes the heart of man from enmity to God to a readiness to hear his word. It is, as the word prevenient indicates, the grace which goes before conversion to effect the work of regeneration. The state of grace is, as we have seen, a state of growth. It leads to a growing person and a progressing society. The society of fallen man can be marked by revolutions in certain phases of its history, but its basic purpose is to establish an unchanging order. Whether it was ancient Chinese society, the Incas of Peru, or modern Marxist theory, its hope is a static order. In brief, the graveyard society to which freedom is a threat and growth has no place. Thus, B.F. Skinner of Harvard in Beyond Freedom and Dignity sees only disaster ahead unless controls replace freedom. The graveyard society of science, sociology, and humanism is inescapable unless men are in a state of grace. Men in the state of grace reign with Christ, Ephesians 2, 4-6. Christ, who rules all things in time and eternity, empowers his people to establish that reign in history, Matthew 28, 18-20. Men in the state of grace will do more than grow. They shall conquer and reign.